hello everybody welcome to the weekly live stream my name is ryan Polly. today we're actually going to be continuing a conversation we started a little while ago this is part two on a series of why god would allow evil now you don't have to watch part one in order to follow along today but if you miss part one I would encourage you to go back and check that out. We responded to the intellectual problem of evil and more specifically, the logical version of that problem, saying that God and evil logically cannot coexist at the same time because of who they are and, and, and how that works. And so we talked about that. And tonight we're going to be looking at the probability version, which says, okay, yes, logically God can coexist with evil, but because there is so much pointless evil and suffering, it's more likely that God does not exist. And so what we're going to be doing tonight, as I'm a teacher and I want to give you a little bit of a uh, heads up on what's coming up in our time together, first our, we're going to be looking at a more in-depth view of the atheist, materialist, secular worldview and why that worldview actually cannot support a problem of evil. I very briefly looked at it in part one. Tonight, I'll go into more explanation as to why uh, that worldview can't complain about the problem of evil. The second thing we're going to be looking at is the reasons why God may allow for evil, pointless, what seems like pointless suffering. And then lastly, I want to focus in on the hope that Christians have and how actually a view, a proper view of eternity and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ can actually radically transform the way that we look at the things that we go through in this life. So those are kind of be the three things uh, that we're going to be looking at here this week. Now, uh, as we jump in, I want to let you know that the next few weeks, actually, I think the next like, six weeks, I have interviews. This is the last time you're going to be listening to me talk by myself for the next few weeks. Uh, next Thursday night at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, I have, oh, let me jump over here. Uh, Neil Harden is going to be joining me. He's an old roommate. He's been on the show quite a few times before. This is the first time he'll be on the YouTube uh, live stream, but he is going to be talking about a biblical approach to singleness and marriage. That's going to be a good one. The week after that, we have J- I have J.P. Moreland coming on, a philosopher, a distinguished chair of philosophy from Talbot School of Theology theology, talking about what the soul is, what is it, do we have it, and why does it actually even matter? After that, I have Mary Jo Sharp coming on to talk about a book that she has written uh, titled Why I Still Believe, and this is actually looking at hypocrisy in the church and why when she converted to Christianity, uh, she saw a lot of reasons why she should actually leave the church and how uh, Christians sometimes give God, a good God, a bad reputation, and so why she still believes even though um, she didn't get a good view of God when she first joined the church. Now, I don't have the slides up here, but you can see them on the YouTube channel. The week after that, we're going to be talking to, or I'm going to be talking to, Natasha Crane. She has a book uh, that's coming out talking, uh, titled Talking to Your Kids About Jesus, How to Have Conversations About Jesus with Your Kids. The week after that will be Mike Winger, and the week after that is John Noyes talking about suicide. Mike Winger will be joining to talk about the Passion Translation. So those are a few interviews coming up. I also have quite a few that I've scheduled scheduled uh, that are a little bit further out, but that'll at least give a heads up for the next few weeks. You can also go over to my YouTube channel and check out the upcoming live streams to see exactly the topics and all that fun stuff. So I'm looking forward to it. I hope you guys are as well. But tonight we're going to be jumping into our second part uh, discussing the problem of evil. And so the first thing, as I mentioned, that I wanted to talk about, and by the way, again, if you have questions, please send those in. Uh, I want to uh, try to address some of the more specific questions and comments that you guys get. So if anything uh, pops up as we are talking in this conversation, please check that out. And then also, let me just do this right now. I'll give you a few resources. I posted some resources there below in the description, uh, but let me see if I can pop this up on the screen. Um, There we go. Um, The first thing I have here is uh, an apologetic resource that I wrote. Uh, This is actually a grad school paper uh, that I wrote for Dr. Clay Jones' class, and I do have an interview with him. He wrote the book, Why Does God Allow Evil?, Uh, But this was uh, my final research paper that I broke up into 10 sections addressing questions relating to evil, like why do we suffer for the sin Adam committed so long ago? Why does God let children die? How might it be fair that God ordered the killing of the Canaanites in the Old Testament? I also have uh, a show, a podcast that I did with Dr. Clay Jones on that question not long ago. 
Uh, is eternal punishment fair? Uh, is conscious belief, if conscious belief is required for salvation, how is it fair to those who have never heard the gospel to send them to hell? If free will so valuable, is free will so valuable to permit evil and suffering? What is the good of suffering that I endure? How might heaven mitigate suffering on earth? We'll talk about that at the end a little bit tonight. And then ultimately, why does God allow evil? And so that is uh, hopefully going to be, uh, or that is there in the description below as a resource for you if that is something uh, that can and be of help. So as we jump into our conversation, I'll pull up a few more resources, but I want to start, as I mentioned, discussing this idea of why a proper worldview is actually important when addressing the problem of evil. And as I mentioned in part one, a pantheistic worldview that says that everything is God and God is good, then the physical world is an illusion and therefore there is no evil. In fact, I just received a post this morning. Actually, let me grab my phone because I was not actually prepared for this. Just this morning in my uh, in my little advertisement trying to get people to come over and watch this specific live stream, um, I received this comment and you can see it right here. It's on my Instagram. And the person commented and said, good and evil are illusions created to control the mind. Duality is but a construct of man. Everything is of one singularity or source. And he continues to go on. This would be that pantheistic worldview. If everything is of one source and that source is good, according even to this comment I received today, good and evil are illusions created to control the mind. It's just an illusion. And so if it's true that there is evil in the world, then pantheism has to be false. And I even responded to this and and he kind of kept going. He said, everything is an illusion. All is an illusion. And my question is, well, if all is an illusion, well, then so are you who is writing this post. And so is the post itself. And therefore, how am I supposed to know if what you're writing is actually true? The fact that you're saying that there's an objective truth, that everything is just an illusion, it seems to be like you're stepping out of this illusion to know what is actually true, to then say everything is an illusion, which is self-defeating. The second part of my response to that comment was, would you actually say this to someone who is dealing with evil and suffering in their lives? Would you look at someone who is a Holocaust survivor and say, hey, all that death that you experienced, that's actually, that's all an illusion. It didn't actually happen. Turn your frown upside down. Would you look at someone with cancer and say, you're not actually sick. That's an illusion. Start thinking positive thoughts. Recognize the source and energy that is all and everything will get better. That's the pantheistic response. And so very simply, the fact that there is evil in the world, I think is a good defeater of a pantheistic worldview. Now, why did I mention in part one that I think atheism cannot support the fact that there is evil in the world? Well, we have to recognize that there's kind of different kinds of morality, right? And there's subjective morality, which means that uh, right and wrong is simply just determined by your own personal preferences, not things that are actually objectively wrong. And so subjective morality is like ice cream. Uh, it's what I like and what I don't like. And there's not a right or wrong. It's just simply a preference. And I I quoted from memory the Richard Dawkins quote uh, in, in one of his books where he talks about that in a world of just random genetic mutations and uh, natural physical laws, uh, you you don't have design, you don't have purpose, there's no good and there's no evil. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. You just have things that we like and things that we don't like. And so let's kind of, uh, let's kind of figure that out. Um, now, if you kind of go, go on, and here's what I, I mentioned this last week, and I think this helps. This is a pineapple pizza. I love pineapple on pizza. I don't know about you. I do. I think it's wonderful. But I found out not long ago that actually pineapple as a pizza topping is listed as one of the top three worst toppings by people. Even worse than anchovies, which blows my mind. I don't know how that's possible that that people can think pineapple on pizza is worse than anchovies. But I did have an old roommate uh, that absolutely despised pineapple on pizza. Anyways, what if someone comes up to you and says, look, here's a pineapple pizza. God does not exist because of pineapple on pizza. And you go, what do you mean? How does pineapple on pizza relate to God's existence. And they say, well, because it is so disgusting. It is so gross. How could a good God create something that is so gross? Now, obviously we would understand that the existence of God and and a personal being and a creator of the universe is not contingent upon you liking or disliking pineapple pizza. 
That's just simply not relevant. And the reason why I bring this point up is simply this. In an atheistic worldview that says that morality is simply all subjective, that there is no objective standard by which we can judge right and wrong, then we just have our personal subjective standard or we have a culturally relative standard that it changes from culture to culture. And especially even if you're going to try to argue that morality is dependent on evolution or that evolution has produced an objective standard of morality, well, evolution is this idea of constant changes and therefore morality should also be changing. People have evolved differently in, in different parts of the world based on adapting to their environment. So we should see a moral standard that has evolved differently, but we don't. We see similar moral threads throughout all cultures. Lastly, I think evolution is not a good standard of morality because evolution is descriptive, not prescriptive. Science and evolution can describe what has happened, but it cannot prescribe what ought to happen. It does not give you a duty, which is what morality is, of thou, you should not murder. You should treat people with respect. Evolution can only tell you what has happened, and science can only tell you what will happen. Versus a Christian perspective is an objective standard, things that are right and wrong, true and false, whether you like it or not, and whether you believe it or not. It's like medicine. This medicine will help you whether you believe it or not. Your arm is broken whether you like it or not. Even if you ignore it, it still is broken. That's how medicine, math, and things like that work. Uh, this is an example that I, I got from Frank Turk, and I, and I love this example from his presentation on I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And he asked the people, which map of Scotland is better which is a better map. You might say A because of one reason or B for another reason, but ultimately in order to know which map is better, you have to know what Scotland actually looks like, right? So when you have the objective, real, unchanging Scotland, now you can say that map A is a better map than B. Why does this matter? Well, map A is better because it more closely aligns with the unchanging standard, Good is that which aligns with the original design or the original standard. Evil or bad is the privation or the absence or the going away and getting worse from that original standard. If Scotland didn't even exist, let's say we're talking about Polysville. Which map is a better map of Polysville? There's no way that you could possibly answer that question. It simply comes down to I like A because it's this. Someone else says I like B because of this. But you could not say one is a better map. It takes an objective standard in order to say one map is better than the other. And so how this relates to God is, is simply, it, it, when it comes to two moral actions, loving, giving someone a hug or punching them in the face, which one is better? Well, what is the best? What is the way that we are supposed to live? Christianity gives that answer in the moral commands of God, and the ethical standard of love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That gives us our moral duties that we are ought to follow and the perfect standard of Jesus Christ that we are supposed to live like so that we can compare our lives to the life of Christ. We can compare our actions to the nature and character of God to know what is actually better and what is worse. If there is no objective standard, if humans are the highest, then it simply just comes down to our preference and opinion. And so that's why I would argue from a atheistic, secular, materialistic worldview. They often don't like atheism being called a worldview, and that is simply atheism is only applies to belief in God. But from a materialistic, naturalistic worldview that the, only the material world exists and that everything happens by natural causes, there is no God, then you have no objective standard by which to judge an action as right or wrong. Everything becomes opinion, and therefore you can't say there's evil in the world. And Richard Dawkins admits this. In a world of random genetic mutations and, and uh, blind physical forces, there is no good, there is no evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And so if you are going to complain that there is evil in the world, you now have to have a standard by which you judge that evil. And that comes down to a worldview issue if you hold to more of a secular worldview. If you have a theistic worldview in which you have a God, and that God is the standard or provides a standard, then you can at least say there's this objective standard that we are to follow. And now evil is the privation or the absence of that. So hopefully that helped a little bit in understanding why I made that argument as to why uh, from a secular perspective, uh, the problem of evil is actually impossible. 
God has to exist in order for there to be evil. Now, again, as I mentioned before, and I'll say it again, the, the secular person, the atheist could say, but you Christians believe in objective right and wrong, and yet your God still allows this to happen. How do you explain that? And that is a good question that we'll talk about. And so we have to recognize, um, as I kind of pointed out, I like this example. Um, I'll just mention this really quickly. Um, t- talking about evil. Evil is the absence of good. Evil is not a thing in and of itself. In the same way that I have a donut here, and there's a donut, and there's a donut hole. Now, the question is, does the donut hole exist? Yes. Is it a thing, though? No, the donut hole is an absence of donut. If it was a thing of an, in and of itself, if you take away the donut, then the donut hole would still exist. The problem is the moment you take away the donut, the donut hole is, all, is also gone. And so it does exist, but it exists only as the absence of donut. If you want to get rid of the donut hole, you get more donut. But if you get rid of the donut, you also don't have a donut hole. So it absolutely exists, but it is not a thing that can exist by itself. Evil is the same way. Evil exists as the privation of good. You can have no evil and all good. And that's what I think heaven is going to be like. And you can maybe ask questions of of why isn't that like it now? Why isn't it like that now? We can talk about that. But you can't have evil exist by itself. Evil is not a thing, but it is the absence of good. It's kind of like shadows. Shadows prove that there's sunlight. If you have no sunlight, you just have darkness. But the moment you have light and you have something blocking that light, it now creates that shadow. So as I mentioned before, we have this problem of evil. You have natural moral evil, and that's broken up into two kind of uh, problems of evil. The emotional problem is the one where people have experienced uh, evil personally in a very personal, emotional way, and that needs a very different response as we look at how do you love them? How do you listen to them? How do you care for them in that time of difficulty, not giving them intellectual answers? The second problem of evil or the, yeah, the problem of evil will be the intellectual problem. And this is that I simply am just intellectually trying to figure out how can we believe in a good God while evil still exists. And as I pointed out in part one, that's broken up into two different parts, the logical and the probability. The logical being that God and evil cannot coexist in the same way that I can't be six foot five and five foot 10 at the same time. It's logically contradictory, but that doesn't fit. And you'll have to go back to part one if you want to go over that more simply because free will. God, if he gave us free will, then that's why he exists at the same time, is that he allows us to have free will and we use that free will wrongly. And so the probability problem is really the stronger argument of the issues or the problems of evil. And that is saying, look, because of all the pointless suffering that we experience, it is a better explanation that God doesn't exist, or it's highly unlikely that God exists. It's not impossible. It is logically possible, but it is highly unlikely. And that's what we are going to be talking about here. So what might be some reasons that God would allow evil? Or is this evil purely uh, pointless, completely pointless uh, suffering? Um, so we went over that argument. Let me make those go away. So we talked about this a little bit. Is all pain evil? Is this what you look like when you're getting your shot? Maybe some of you. But we recognize not all pain is evil. Pain is a valuable teacher of lessons. Pain helps us understand when things are broken. Pain helps us understand when something is going wrong and stop it. I always tell the example of when I had appendicitis and I had pain in my stomach. That told me something is wrong with you. Get to the hospital. Imagine if I didn't have that pain. And I just go throughout my day like everything's normal. My appendix blows up and I probably wind up dead. It's pain that is often very valuable. We also recognize when we give injections to little kids, they don't understand why they are going through that pain. And so one thing that's important for us to recognize when we talk about what we think is pointless suffering, why would God allow all this pointless suffering? How do we actually know it is pointless? How do you know God doesn't have a better plan in mind, a greater good in mind? Little children, when receiving injections, don't understand the point of the suffering they're going through and why their parent would allow that, them to be, that pain to be inflicted upon them. But as parents, we understand that there's a greater good in mind. The first thing we have to recognize is that we're simply just not in a position to know that there is no greater good. So we have to take that into consideration. The second question we have to think about is, okay, so then, you know, why is all this pointless suffering happening to good people? Well, there are no good people. 
I often say the only one time, and I, I got this from, um, I think it was R.C. Sproul Jr. Only one time in all of human history has a good thing, sorry, has a bad thing happened to a good person. And he volunteered. Talking about the person of Jesus Christ sacrificing himself on the cross. That's the only time a bad thing has happened to a good person. Scripture is clear that only Jesus is good. Only God is good. That no one is good. No, not one. We do not, we're not just simply not good people. And now you respond and go, well, hold on a second. But I do good things all the time, right? I do good things. How does this make any sense, right? People do good things. Look, this, this girl is helping an, her, her opponent finish the race. And you have this old lady who's now cooked cookies, maybe bake some cookies for the little kids. They do good things. Really? Does doing a good thing make you a good person? I don't think so. Doing a good thing simply makes you a doer of good. Think about it for a second. Just because this lady baked cookies, she's a good person. Is it possible you could be super racist? This could be a super racist KKK grandma making cookies for all the little KKK kids. <laughs> yeah, that's possible. Does that make her a good person? No, of course not. Just because you bake cookies doesn't make you a good person. I often joke, and I, but I think it's true. Like, do you think Hitler, who we all would believe to be one of the worst people to have ever lived, do you think that he went home and hugged his wife at night? Probably. I assume he did. Does that make him a good person because he gave his wife some hugs? No. Doing a good thing does not make you a good person. It makes you a person who does good things. Now, another thing I learned from my professor, uh, Clay, Dr. Clay Jones, I think is so valuable, is that we often do good things out of selfish reasons. It's out of self-preservation that we often do good things. Why would someone who robs a bank stop at a red light? Do they all of a sudden decide that they're now going to follow the traffic laws when they don't care about other laws? No, it's probably because there's a semi-truck that's barreling down the street in the other direction that if they try to run the red light, they're going to get smashed. They're not just deciding that they want to follow the traffic laws. It's, that it's out of self-preservation. They don't want to get in an accident and then get caught. Or another example, students in my class. Why do some students not cheat? Is it because they actually recognize that cheating is wrong? Why is it that the student who is trying to figure out how they can cheat, they're trying to figure out how they can write notes on something, they're trying to do it and they're, they're in their mind and they're doing everything they can to figure out how can I do this? How can I get away with this? Why? And then they don't cheat. Why don't they just cheat? Is it because they actually think it's wrong and they're a good person and they want to do what's right? No. It's often because they don't want to get caught. They haven't figured out a way that they can do it without getting caught. And the moment they think they have found a way of doing it without getting caught, they cheat. Oftentimes, it's not, not cheating because they think it's wrong or they're good people. It's because they're going to get caught. Another example, you know, a married man and woman and both at work, but they're not married to each other and they're flirting and they're imagining and they're visualizing and they're dreaming of sexual, this sexual encounter that they could have with one another. Why don't they just have it? Why doesn't the guy just simply have an affair with the person? Is it because he's a good person? Is that why he stopped? No, if he's a good person, then he wouldn't be doing that. He wouldn't be imagining that. He wouldn't be fantasizing about this woman that is not his wife. Oftentimes it doesn't happen because... He doesn't want to come home with a disease. He doesn't want to get her pregnant. That would need some explaining. And oftentimes affairs take place when the person, either one has given up hope, doesn't care anymore, or two, thinks that they're not going to get caught. I think that sometimes it's hard to grasp, but I think it's true in the sense that we often do what's right, not because we're good people and because it's right, but because of selfish reasons and self-preservation. We simply just don't want to get in trouble. It's oftentimes why bad things happen. And so this question becomes very different when you ask the question, why do bad things happen to bad people? That's a much simpler answer. And so hopefully we kind of, as we're thinking through this, man, all this pointless suffering, well, one, we're not in a position to know. Another thing to think about is obviously, yeah, we have free will. God has given us this free will and people choose to use that free will wrongly. 
but free will is valuable for us to even complain about it in the first place. The third thing is this, and I want to pull this up. The third thing is this. Let's go over here. Heaven. Well, one, I, that's a little bit different. We'll skip this. One, heaven will reduce our suffering here on this earth. And this is valuable, and this is what we often don't think about it, is, is imagine a life, uh, secular worldview would say there is no life after this. This is the only life that we have. So imagine I have it here on the, this top line that you have 80-year living, uh, and at 40 years old, you contract a, a terrible sickness disease that just puts you in excruciating pain for the last 40 years of your life. And you've suffered 40 years of your life. That is you suffering 50% of your lifetime. That's half your life that you've suffered. That sucks. Now imagine, but from a Christian worldview, the exact same person, good first 40 years, bad last 40 years, but at this life, life doesn't end and instead lives for all of eternity. That eternity, when you take 40 years of terrible suffering and you divide that by infinity, that will effectively create our suffering in this life to zero now, that doesn't mean that the suffering that a person is going through is an illusion or is, isn't real. It does not mean that. It absolutely is real. It absolutely is terrible, and we go through terrible things. But recognizing eternity and what eternity does will shrink our suffering down to insignificance. And again, that's why uh, we have here, let me pull this up, in uh, 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, and we'll talk about this more uh, here in a little bit. Here in the verse 16, For do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Think about that for a second. Let that sink in. I personally think this is what Paul is often thinking about. And what we can take from this is this light and momentary affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory. And we'll come back to this here at the end. But this light and momentary affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory. How can he call something a light and momentary affliction? Think about the things that Paul went through. Think about all the, the, the things that happened to him and the suffering that he endured. How could he possibly say a light and momentary affliction? He doesn't understand the, thing that the things that I'm going through. He doesn't understand the pain I'm going through and the suffering that is happening in my life. I think he does. But I think he has more of this perspective where the suffering that we go through in this life compared to the eternal glory that awaits us will shrink our suffering down to almost insignificance, that it is a light and momentary affliction. Now, the same is true for the non-believer. The opposite, sorry, no, the opposite is true. Think about this for a second. You could have the most wonderful, beautiful, money-filled, relation-filled, joy-filled, power and fame-filled life you could possibly ever imagine with not one bit of suffering in your life at all. I don't think that's possible, but you could have that. But if you do not know Christ and you have chosen a life without him and you have rejected him and pushed him away and eventually he says, okay, you want a life without me, I grant you a life without me. You get away from my presence and you spend eternity in separation from God, which is hell. You will effectively suffer 100% of your existence because even an 80-year perfect life divided by infinite suffering in hell is suffering for 100% of your existence. And hopefully, this is an encouragement to Christians listening. This is why we can't just sit back. When, when people have a false understanding of the gospel, when they do not know Jesus Christ, and, and we go, well, well that, that's up to them. Right? I challenge my students and places where I go talk with this comment. If your friends, the people you work with and go to school with and the people you deeply care about, if they're ha eating things that are unhealthy, if they're doing physical harm to their body, we often stop them. 
we often try to persuade them not to do those things. If someone is, again, eating unhealthy and, and they're just not exercising, we often try to encourage them and persuade them, man, that's not good for you. You need to change that. If someone's smoking or something, hey, that's not good for you. You need to change that. Because we care about them. We want them to live well. Yet the spiritual life, the things that are actually eternal, not just physical, we don't put the same importance on. We go, wow, that's their opinion. Kind of let them do their thing. You know, that's, that's their decision. They make up their own mind. We often, we don't see the spiritual life as being as important as the physical life. Christians, we recognize the spiritual is more important. The things that are transient are the seen things. The things we see are transient. The things that are unseen are those are the eternal things. But it's the things that we see that we're often gripped with and we focus on. We plead with our friends and family to see the importance of that. But we often forget the importance of the things that are eternal, things that are vastly more important. Hopefully this understanding and this thought that we have here of that if someone does not know Christ and we truly believe that they're going to go to an eternal life separated from him and effectively suffer 100% of their life, we need to say something. And as I was teaching actually my students today, I was talking to them about this idea of um, universalism, that at, at one point, God will eventually woo everyone into being uh, in heaven, that he eventually will win over everyone. And I don't think that's true. It sounds nice. It'd be nice if that were true, that people wouldn't spend an eternity in separation from God. But that's just simply not what scripture says. And so me and my love and care and compassion for the lost It's not to change what Jesus has taught about eternal destruction and eternal separation from him. And that this life is where we make those choices. But my care and compassion for them is to help them realize the need of a savior, the need for a savior, right? If you have the cure to cancer, you don't try to tell people that that have cancer that they don't and make them happy and try to, oh, just make them happy until they pass away. No, you have to kind of convince them that they have cancer, give them that bad news, but then persuade them that you have uh, the cure for that. We have to recognize how eternity shapes things. Now, I want to pull up another resource uh, for us. And uh, I've talked about this on the show before, but not on YouTube. So this will be new for you guys. Uh, But here is uh, hopefully a helpful uh, article uh, that I wrote quite a while ago, actually. Um, giving 10 reasons why God may allow suffering in our life. So again, this is trying to help us understand this question of if God uh, does exist and if he is good, why would he allow what seems to be pointless suffering in our life? And here the first thing that we see is this, um, that God may be using this suffering uh, to manifest his power. And we see this example in John 9, where Jesus shares a story about a man who's blind from birth. And why would, God, why would this happen? Jesus responds, it's neither that this man sinned or his parents, but it's so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We often want God to show up in incredible, powerful ways. Now think about this, and this is so vastly important. People often, and I hear this all the time, if God wants me to believe in him, then he would show up and do something crazy and he would get me to believe in him. Well, that's one reason why God might allow suffering is we see this example where a person suffered, Jesus came, healed him. We saw a radical transformation in this person's life so that the power of God and the works of God are going to be displayed in him. But yet when people suffer, They don't like to look at that as evidence for God. In fact, they try to show that that means that God doesn't exist. Well, how is God going to get our attention if there's no pain? We can't have resurrections from the dead if people never die, right? Often the the incredible thing that people want to see that is going to point them to the existence of God or, or that they want to be proof of God's existence often comes because we recognize something is bad that is now better, that God does some miraculous miracle, something that we would not expect. I think that's one reason why God may allow suffering and still be good. He's demonstrating his power. Second thing is that God may use this affliction and suffering to remove a cause for boasting. It's hard to say how amazing you are when things are hard. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 12, about the thorn in the flesh. It's hard to boast when you've been beat up pretty good. It's hard to say how you have done everything yourself when things are not going well. It's often the people that, 
you know, I, I say it, it's, it's the people that are hungry that look for vending machines and look for food providers. If you are full, if you just had lunch, you don't even recognize that vending machine. And we often only go to God. We see God as the one who's there that's going to help us when we're hurt, when we're down, when we're out. And so sometimes God uses that suffering, causing us to get down and out to actually draw our attention to him. It takes away that cause for boasting. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was at Biola University speaking at Turn Your Campus, an event trying to help students recognize or, or uh, motivate them and encourage them to be evangel evangelistic on their high school campuses. And so I did a session on the tactics for defending their faith, how to deal with difficult objections, as well as uh, I actually did a short little atheist role play where I, I kind of argued with them back and forth. And one thing that uh, came up or afterwards, a girl came up to me and said, okay, my friend always tells me that he has done everything in life by himself, that he doesn't need anyone's help. He's done, he, he's done everything himself and he doesn't need that help. What should I say? And I, and I laugh about that because really you've done everything by yourself. You made the clothes that you're wearing. You stitched together the shoes that are on your feet. You programmed and designed the phone that you're using to make the calls. You built the car that you're driving and you paved the roads that you're driving on. And you designed the plane that you flew in to get here. You also gave birth to yourself. You taught yourself everything that you learned in school. No, you were in school. You had teachers. You cooked the food that you're eating. Well, if you did, you probably didn't grow it, right? And I normally kind of keep going on and on. You sleep in a house you didn't build on a bed that you didn't make. Tell me more about how you did everything yourself. Well, I made money. Okay, you made your own money. Good. What did you use to make that money? A computer. Yeah. Did you build that computer? No, Apple did. Okay. <laughs> we need people's help for everything. We easily, I think, tend to talk about how we are good. We don't need help. I've done everything myself. And we overlook the countless, numerous ways in which God comes along and helps us and when which people have helped us. Even if you have built the business, I'm sure that you have customers that have bought product from you and that's the only reason that you've been able to build a business. You need other people's help. I love this comment that just came in. Let me pull this up right here. Linda, thank you so much for sending this in. Let me add this to the broadcast. Oh, let me go away from that right here really quick. And there we go. I have fibromyalgia and arthritis. I'm only 57. I tell people so the time that my I, I tell people so the time that my constant pain has brought me closer to God. I had to retire early, so I spend more time reading my Bible. Absolutely, it's this pain. And, and another thing that, that this pain often does, and again, Dr. Clay Jones talks about this, and I learned this from him, and this is so valuable, is that. He talks about when he experiences pain and sickness, it, it's a valuable lesson not to love this world too much, not to love the physical things too much, to recognize our bodies are breaking down and there is a greater glory and hope that awaits us. If I never get sick, if I never have any problems, if I never have any pain, I start to maybe recognize that I'm God, that I'm, I'm on top of the world, that I got this, right? That is what we talk about here of this cause for boasting. It's pain that teaches us not to love this life and this body and these things too much and to think that we have made it all ourselves. Linda, thank you so much for, for commenting that and for sharing. God allows afflictions to demonstrate true and genuine faith of Satan. We see this in Job uh, where he has gone through these things and he has showed faithfulness to God, right? In that pain, are you still able to say God is good? That shows the mark of true, genuine faith. It's not just... God is good because he gave me all this stuff and now I have stuff. It's God is good because he's good, even in the difficulties. We see possible suffering being because we have an opportunity to demonstrate the body of Christ concept, that we need each other, that again, we're not doing this all by ourselves. We see that suffering often promotes our sanctification. First Peter 1, and I want to pull that up. I think this is so valuable and helpful. Let me get it here. There we go. My church, in our church Bible study, we just went over this this week. Reading the beginning here of 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Notice that, a living hope. 
What is this hope that is alive that we have? Here it is. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Look at that for a second and dwell on those words. We have, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we talked about just a couple weeks ago with, with Gary Habermas and the evidence for the resurrection, that we can know that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Because of this, we have an inheritance that produces a living hope that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. How incredible is that? It's kept for us in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It is this you rejoice now for a while, a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So there are trials and you've been grieved by these. But so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that precious, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you loved him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. My goodness, that is so beautiful. As we, as we recognize and look at how our sanctification is promoted. We see this again in James and Romans and 1 Peter 5, the perseverance through afflictions. Even Christ learned humility and obedience through suffering. We have uh, here, absolutely. Um, yeah, Second Corinthians, as we mentioned before, therefore, in order to keep from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Thank you, Faith from Fact Channel, for pointing that one out as well, as we talked about here, that uh, in, verse, in uh, number two, right? That's that Second Corinthians uh, passage there in 12, verse 7. I often tell students and think about this is uh, in this idea of our sanctification, right? That one reason, again, another reason why God may allow pain and suffering in our lives is what is called a soul-making defense, that it's actually producing in us a greater character. How could we possibly ever understand the the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross if we have never had to sacrifice? How can we understand the forgiveness of God if we've never had to forgive? And you don't have to forgive if no one ever offends you. How can we understand the peace of God if we don't know what chaos is? And I could keep going on. Excuse me. I truly believe that it is the experience, the, the experience of this life that will cause us to truly appreciate the goodness and the glory and the peace and the love of God when we get to heaven. That we will know what it truly means to say that he paid a price for us because we have had to maybe pay prices for people and other things. That is so valuable as we are sanctified and as we are grown deeper and more like Christ, our Savior, who also suffered for us. That is also a very different picture when we think about it. Christ who came and, and said that there is going to be eternal separation from him and that there is suffering was not separated from it, that he came and suffered for us. And then it provided that encouragement as we go on and continue to suffer. I want to get through these a uh, few more of these reasons because I do want to focus on this eternal hope that awaits us in heaven. Um, God permits affliction in a life of the righteous because of ministry that is possible. Many people are able to minister in incredible ways and impact the lives of others because of suffering that they have gone through. They have a story to help to tell that is of powerful influence. It maybe prepares us for greater trials. We go through something small, we build up that endurance and so that we can withstand something even greater. God may allow suffering and affliction in believers as preparation for judgment of their works and rewards. As Feinberg, in, in his book, um, The Many Faces of Evil, as we endure afflictions, we should become more Christ-like. If we do, then indeed our lives are likely to be filled with the deeds that please God. If our lives are pleasing to God, there will be reward. Ultimately, suffering may exalt us. Affliction has a way of bringing us low so that God may be exalted. 
First Peter 5, 6 talks about this. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. And then finally, God may use affliction as a means to take a believer to be with him. As life comes to an end, the final affliction will usher us into God's presence. But for the believer, death is a doorway into an everlasting blessing in the presence of God. That is hope that we have to look forward to. So I want to jump over here now to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter, sorry, 2 Corinthians verses 3 and 4. I shared 4 here with us. I want to jump back to 3. Back in November, I had the opportunity to attend the Evangelical Theological Society's annual conference. And this was held down in San Diego. And part of this, I went and I listened to a, a lecture that was given by Kyle Strobel, uh, the son of Lee Strobel, Case for Christ guy. Uh, yeah, and uh, he is a professor at Talbot School of Theology and has done incredible work himself. And he talked about this, this idea of the glory of God. And I, and I want to finish off our time that we have with this. And again, if you have any other questions and comments, please send those in. But he, he focused in on 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. And so I want to look at this with us and kind of talk about what he uh, discussed in, uh, at the Evangelical Theological Society's annual conference. And he looked at, at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and this idea of um, that, this, I, well, starting verse 3, and you show that you are letters of Christ delivered by us, not written in ink, but the spirit of the living God, tab- not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart, right? So this new covenant has now come in It's not like the old covenant that was given to Moses on tablets of stone, but it is uh, written on our hearts through the person of Jesus. And then he goes kind of back now, um, Paul does as he's writing this, and in verse 7, focuses in on what took place with Moses in the Old Testament. Right? It says, and now if the ministry of death carved in, in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. Um, sorry, I lost my place. Which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that has surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Think about this. We look at the story of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, experiencing the presence of God on top of Mount Sinai, coming down with a face that is radiant. And I mean, how many Christians don't want to be like, I don't want that to happen. How amazing the glory of God to take place in that way. Man, I wish that would happen to me. How cool would that be? What Paul is writing here is that if that experience, simply having the presence of God, created the shine on Moses's face so much so that the Israelites could not look at his face. Realize that that glory was being brought to an end. That glory was designed to fade. And then says, how much more will the ministry, how much more glory will the ministry of the Holy Spirit have? If there's glory in condemnation, how much more is the glory in the ministry of righteousness? We have a glory that has surpassed gone greater and far more than the glory that Moses experienced, right? But our, our eyes are, are veiled, as it says here in verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, right? The veil is removed. And then with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory for another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Now look here in chapter four, verse four. In their case, the God of this world has blinded them. So the non-believer, they've been blinded, but they blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, our Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Now recognize this for a second. What do we think about when we think about the glory of God that is being revealed, right? We look at what Moses experienced and go, wow, how amazing. But what we see here is that 
the glory that comes with Jesus, the new covenant, the glory that is written on our hearts far outweighs and exceeds that. Moses had some kind of sight of God, but he did not have the full picture of God that we have here. Moses's face simply reflected the glory of God. It was created to fade. It was something physical. But God, the glory of God is going to be that we have it is an eternal glory, not a fading glory, but one that is eternal. That glory with Moses was meant to fade. The old covenant faded. What we have is reflecting the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who is alive and it is not fading. Right? This is an eternal glory compared to a temporary one. This is also what we have is an internal glory compared to an external one. See, what, what, G, what Moses had, as I talked about before, the physical, the external is what we see and is often what we think is, oh my goodness, look how amazing. What we have is internal, so we don't see it. We don't often recognize the goodness of it, the, the lasting impact of it. But what we have written on our hearts and what says here in chapter 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians is far greater than that which Moses experienced. And it's also not just the presence of God, which is what Moses had, but we actually have the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God himself came down to earth, not just simply his presence. You see, what often grabs our attention and what we are drawn to is visibly spectacular, but it's fading. What we have may not be as visibly spectacular, but it is eternal. And it far outweighs what Moses have. And this is why, again, then we see here, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. When we go through this physical pain and suffering, we often get to get caught up in the physical aspect, in the pain of it, in the hurt of it. And that is real because the pain is real and the hurt is real and the suffering is real. And that often can so easily grab our attention. But hopefully what we are recognizing when we're thinking in the purely intellectual aspect of, is it unlikely that God would exist in the face of what seems like pointless suffering? Well, hopefully I've helped to see that this is not necessarily pointless suffering. We can't actually say it's pointless. We are not in a perspective to say as all-knowing that this is pointless. There is no good reason for it. I've gone over at least 10 reasons why there may be good reason for the suffering that we endure. That there may be good reasons and good, well, yeah, as I said, good reasons why God is allowing this. And then to take that and say, God is still good. He is preparing an inner self, maybe something I cannot see. That is what's being renewed by today, day by day. Yes, this outer self, this temporary physical existence that I have here on this planet, yes, this will one day end. And I will experience an eternal glory of God and his happiness that will far outweigh and surpass the physical suffering that I go through. That is what happens when we look to the things that are unseen rather than the things that are seen. It radically transforms us. And so as we, we kind of wrap up here and we're thinking about this idea of how do we understand this problem of evil? Why would God allow these things to happen? There's so much pointless suffering. I don't think that there is. It may seem pointless to us, but God has told us that he remains faithful, that he is with us, that he sent Jesus Christ down into this life to be with us, to experience the suffering that we go through. Because as he pointed out, God is good. Thank you, Linda. God is good. Therefore, what we experience is for a good reason, even when we do not understand it. And so from a purely intellectual aspect, as we kind of come back to uh, this idea, let's go back to our chart. To say that most likely God does not exist because of what seems like pointless suffering no, we've gone through. Suffering actually has a good reason. Pain is a valuable teacher of lesson. We don't have the knowledge of all things to say that this is pointless suffering. And that suffering actually does produce character, produces hope, and that God has a future perspective in mind that we all often don't have. And so we recognize that this probability argument saying that God most likely does not exist because of pointless suffering also does not 
work. It's not satisfied. Now think about this. And the last thing I want to cover is we should actually expect based on what we know about Christian beliefs and Christian doctrines, we should expect evil, pain, and suffering. We live in a fallen, broken world from sin. We are fallen and sinful creatures. The purpose of life in Christianity is not happiness. I said it before. I'll say it again. God doesn't just want you to be happy. God wants you to be holy. There's a difference. If the purpose of life is to be happy, then yes, much of the suffering and pain that we go through is pointless, is without reason, because it's not producing happiness in us. But don't be deceived, especially if you're a Christian. Don't be deceived that the purpose of life is to be happy. That's not the purpose of life. The purpose of life is to know God and to make him known. The purpose of life is to experience him and to live with him forever. And I think there are many good reasons, as we've seen, that it is suffering that draws us closer to him and increases our experience of him as we truly recognize what he has done for us. Again, Dr. Jones in his class gives so many examples when he talks about how people are not good. And when he sees tragedy happening, yes, he is upset and we should be upset by tragedy. It should break our hearts when we see school shootings and when we see evil taking place all around us. But at the same time, it should not shock us. Like how, how could this happen? It's not the, 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 it is the norm. It's not the random occurrence when people do evil. Like one thing that he says constantly, Dr. Jones says in his class and it sticks with students. That's what people do. When we look at the evil that is done around the world, that's what people do. That's what the normal person does. We hurt people. We murder. We cheat. We steal. We do these things. That's what humans do because we are inherently broken. That then leads us to see a world that is broken because it's not the way it was supposed to be. That is such a good reason to believe in a God who created a world who's supposed to be like this and eventually will redeem and restore it. The Christian, understanding Christian doctrines of how God has created us and how human beings are fallen and sinful, we should expect a world of evil, pain, and suffering. Not one without it. It's Christianity that predicts it. Not one that is false because of it. And so, leaving you with this encouragement again of the hope of the future that awaits us. The glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. How good is that? That when we look at this, what looks like this problem, the intellectual problem fails. The emotional problem is still real though. We still experience deep and hurtful things. And that is why we need the body of Christ to surround us in those times, to come alongside us when we are deeply hurt and troubled by the loss of loved ones or pain of sickness and disease or death. We need to come around people and love them and support them and not make them feel alone and not even leave them alone. And if you are going through that, know that you're not alone. Reach out, tell someone so that they can come alongside you and love that you don't give people an intellectual response to the emotional problem of evil. Come alongside them. That problem is real. That problem affects us in very deep, deep ways. But recognize that that doesn't mean that God does not exist or Christianity is is false. It is only Christianity that gives hope in the face of evil. The other worldviews, what can atheism say? What can, what can new spirituality say? What can they say in the face of evil? Either one, it's an illusion. It's not happening. What you're going through is not even real. Ignore it. Forget about it. Or sucks for you, right? That's the atheistic worldview. Things happen. It's just blind, pitiless indifference. Sorry. It's only Christianity that can truly provide hope in the face of evil. So if there are no more questions that come in. Thank you guys so much for this time. Again, there's a lot of resources that you can check out. Uh, Coffeehousequestions.com is the website with tons and blogs and articles. I linked a bunch of them in the description below. Please uh, follow um, on um, 
on Twitter and Instagram. Again, great way to connect and um, see all the things that are going on and the interviews that are coming up. Again, you can like and subscribe. Again, a lot of really cool, exciting interviews coming up in the next few weeks with Neil Harden and JP Moreland and Mary Jo Sharp and Natasha Crane and Mike Winger and John Noyes and then more in the future. So with that, I am going to sign off. Have a blessed week, everybody. Love God. Love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I pray that this helps you and encourages you as you go out and be ambassadors of Jesus Christ in this culture as you help people see the goodness of God in the face of evil. Absolutely, Linda. Atheism gives you nothing. Just, well, deal with it. That's what happens. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you so much for participating and commenting. I really do appreciate that. Everybody, have a blessed week. See you guys later. Won't hesitate to follow your love